0: Welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast, a podcast that equips therapists to thrive in business, expand their reach, and create flourishing and meaningful lives, both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Claire Blakey. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice. I believe in being a multi-passionate therapist. You can have a thriving, financially impactful business. Be a leader in the community and also a business entrepreneur. You don't have to choose and your impact as a clinician can go beyond the therapy room. I believe that you can be a therapist and an entrepreneur, a Therapreneur. And I believe that every therapist deserves the tools, community, and resources to build thriving businesses and flourishing lives. I pair my passion and previous career in PR, marketing, and blogging with my education and experience as a clinician to equip therapists like you who are multi-passionate and wanting to pursue additional opportunities to grow your skill set and expand your reach. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Let's create impact and build flourishing lives and businesses we're proud of. Here we go. We go to Google for everything from recipes to answers to our most burning questions. But did you know that many people are also looking for therapist on Google SEO or search engine optimization is the number one way many therapists get clients and you can learn how to optimize your website for search engines too. This spring, I enrolled in Optimize Your Practice, Therapy SEO's signature group coaching program for therapists who want to learn SEO. Although SEO can get super technical and complicated, Christy Platinga, Therapy SEO's founder, made it super accessible, and I've already implemented things that I've learned in the program. So if you're tired of wondering where your next clients are coming from, Head to optimizeyourpractice.com slash waitlist to get more information about how learning SEO can transform your private practice. Hi, Lindsay, and welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. So glad to have you on the podcast today. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and share with the audience a little bit more about you, we'd love to learn more.
1: Yeah. Hi, Claire. I'm happy to be here and happy to introduce myself to your listeners. I'm a financial therapist, so my background is in clinical social work, and I have some additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy, and in addition to having my private practice where I do financial therapy with clients in the state that I'm licensed in Michigan, I also have a coaching arm where I help other private practice therapists Rewrite their money stories without spiritual bypassing so they can set and stick to sustainable rates and grow profitable practices in alignment with their values. Um, so, I'm based in Michigan, which is on unceded territory of the Peoria, Fox, Potawatomi, and Anishinaabwe. Um, and when I'm not binging on money related podcasts, I go in the complete opposite direction to relax and I watch a lot of Bravo TV. I like taking my dog on long walks. And at the time of this recording, it's just getting to be like a few weeks of nice warm weather here. And so soaking up all the vitamin D while it's out.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit more? Cause it sounds like you have obviously the clinical background and then you have the financial background, but do you mind just so our listeners have a sense, like how long have you been licensed? Where did you go to school? What was your journey into being a therapist? Like we'd love to learn those pieces too.
1: Of course. So my bachelor's degree is in sociology and I graduated right into the great recession in 2008. Mm-hmm. And It was right before the recession hit, actually. And so I got my first job in marketing, which I had never taken a marketing class, never sat through a business class, didn't even know what marketing was. Um, But this was at the time where if you had a degree, you could get a job. And that was very true for me. I graduated on a Friday, and by Sunday, I was in training to do marketing. Um, turns out hated it, wasn't a good fit for me, but it was a great life lesson and learning lesson. And during that time, the economy totally tanked, but I was more or less secured from that in that I had this job. And so when people were talking about the economy crashing, it didn't really hit. I didn't really get what that meant because I was still getting a paycheck and I was still living my life and in my early twenties and whatever. So when the marketing company offered to extend my contract, I said, not a chance in hell. Uh, I'm out (laughs) of here. Bye. Not really thinking that I probably needed to have feelers out there. Like it just didn't even cross my mind. So I said, nope, not resigning the contract. I'm going to go travel, went traveling literally around the world, Um, went to Europe and Asia for three months Came back thinking, all right, I'll just like land on my feet and get a job. And haha, it's now mid 2009 and there are no jobs to be had. So I went back to being a waitress. Um, No shame in that. I've been a waitress since the age of 16. And during that time, I started interning and volunteering, trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And social work came to mind. I'd always had an interest in mental health. Like many people I've struggled with depression and anxiety, and I've been in recovery from an eating disorder for 10 plus years. So it's very personal to me. Um, and I knew that with social work. I changed my mind a lot that it would be a good fit in that I could do school work, I could do clinical work. I could do macro work. I could work in a healthcare setting. So I went to the university of Michigan and got my clinical social work degree and my MSW and got my first MSW job and got my first paycheck. And I was earning drum roll, please less than what I did as a waitress. Oh my gosh. Right. And that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon in our field to get a job, to have gone to school, at least graduate school. So we're talking Six years of education for many people, it's more plus two years of an externship or internship, sitting through an exam, getting your boards done, and then maintaining your licensure and making less money than you'd anticipated. So I consumed as much financial content as I could, and what they were all telling me was that I was a bad, I was a bad person because I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was bad because I had a desire to go out to eat and I wanted to go on vacation and I wanted more than just making ends meet. And I was bad for not being able to manage my money. Mm. And that didn't sit right with me because at this time I was in the early stages of recovery from an eating disorder. And it felt very parallel to a lot of the messages I'd been telling myself about foods being good or bad foods, being off limits, um, being a good person. If I ate this, being a bad person, if I ate that or didn't exercise or whatever the problem was, And it just felt so wrong, Claire, to be trying to be good with money and being told that you're not doing it right. And as a therapist, I just saw so many missed opportunities here. And that really kickstarted my love for personal finances and trying to figure out a more ethical and equitable approach to them. And that's when I found financial social work. That's when I found financial therapy. And that's when I really came into my own of wanting to help my clients with money. Because as social workers, I was trained when somebody comes in with a financial issue, you refer them out. You refer them to a credit counselor or you refer them to a bank or you refer them to anybody else, but certainly not you. And I just thought that was so, so messed up. Like here I am trained to hold space for people struggling with depression, with anxiety, with mental health issues, but I'm not
0: allowed to talk about money. Well, especially because that's something that impacts all of those things. Yes. Yes. The connection piece. It's like, it feels similar, like in the sense that like money is an intimate topic Mm
1: -hmm. and in the same
0: way sex is an intimate topic, but people specialize in sex therapy. Ding, ding, ding. 100%. 100%. 100%.
1: 100%. I couldn't believe that our field was being told we weren't allowed to talk to our clients about money, but exactly, we're allowed to get training in trauma and sex and polyamory and abuse, neglect. You know, the list goes on and on. When it comes to off-limit topics, therapists should be on the front lines of holding space for their clients. And so like what a missed opportunity that very few of us get training on how to talk to our clients about money. Now it's a little bit different. I graduated in 2011 with my MSW. So it's been over a decade. So now there are a few schools that offer financial social work tracks or who have some personal finance courses, but when i was in school the only time we talked about money was in a death and dying class when we were talking about things like wills trust durable powers of attorney things like that but that's the closest we ever got to to talking about money so you're you're so right that what a missed opportunity what what a what a gap in our field
0: yeah and to ignore that feels like a disservice to the client especially if that is you know part of the roots of what's going on if that is 100%. causing marital conflict, if that is causing, you know, distress with, you know, buying food and like all the different pieces, like this is a piece that if you ignore it, I imagine that is just.
1: And and the consequences are incredibly high. I don't say this to be, um, you know, alarmist or anything, Mm -hmm. but if you ignore money in a romantic relationship, let's just use that as an example. Uh, the consequences are really high, not just within that relationship, but if you are not looking at your money, your credit score can suffer. You can end up late or delayed on bills and payments. You can end up having, you know, your possessions repossessed. You can end up in a lot of financial hardship, which then causes more stress and more trauma. So it's not like the stakes are low. It's not like you know, not to say that stakes are low anytime in therapy, but it's not like, just like, oh, you had a bad day. That's a bummer. The stakes are really high here. Our relationship with money and how we engage with it impacts every aspect of our lives. There's no human that doesn't have to earn, spend, loan, lend, engage with money in some way.
0: Yeah. Well, kind of, bringing it back to the piece. Cause I feel like we could go into a deep dive of like talking about clients and I love that yeah. kind of stuff. But when I think about the audience, I think about who's listening to this right now. And I think about our overarching topic about money. And as a therapist, what would you say makes money so uncomfortable for therapists? Like, why is this such a sticky, uncomfortable, ambivalent, avoided at all costs topic?
1: Because for a group of people that really prides themselves on being able to see the middle, we have a pretty black and white relationship with money in therapy. And it's that you can have money or you can be a good therapist, but there's not the room for dialectics there to have both. And this is reinforced in our schooling, in our internships and within our peer groups, right? So we have our own relationship with money. If you think of like um, ecological model of what impacts Mm. us. Like we, we talk, I'm, you know, for the podcast listeners, they can't see me, but I'm making circles with my hands and I'm going in and out. So the innermost layer is our interpersonal relationship with money. And on that outermost layer is kind of societal relationship with money. So we bring our own baggage from how we were raised, what neighborhood we grew up in, what was the norm in our life and our personal meaning to money. And then kind of in the middle, we have what our um, profession says about money and what is allowed and not allowed professionally with money and how that's all reinforced. And then we have societal expectations. And when it comes to societal expectations, you and I are talking from the United States and there is, in my opinion, one narrative about money that's acceptable. And it is, if you work really hard, you can have whatever you want and you will be rewarded with the American dream. And the only acceptable person to have money within the context of the American dream is a person who is born struggling financially and works really hard and works their way up. That's the only acceptable narrative. The person who is born into a family who had money, they're not acceptable because they were born with a silver spoon in the mouth. The person who was born lower income or impoverished and doesn't make it out of poverty, well, they're a terrible person because they didn't work hard enough. So therapists have bought into this belief as well that if I have money, And I didn't follow that exact trajectory, then somehow I'm bad. And it also comes into, you know, we're here talking about Therapreneurs. It comes into our work in terms of we get really caught up on ethics and accessibility, right? Go to any Facebook group and, and just type in, I'm thinking of leaving insurance panels and watch the fire that ensues, oh right? You're going <laughs> to see like, that's not ethical. We can't do this. You're not being accessible. Yeah. And I think we forget as therapists that yes, finances are a hundred percent, a part of accessibility, but they're only a small slice of the pie. And we have to think creatively, not just creatively, just realistically about other forms of accessibility that don't have to do with finances. So I'll pause there and we'll, we'll kind of unpack that.
0: Yeah. Well, you're naming so many things. And I, I loved that example that you gave of kind of reflecting on like what our society specifically kind of, um, expects or how they perceive different people based off of finances and also just kind of like the expectation and that, Kind of bleeds into like you said the clinical expectation the um, american dream expectation the all the all the different pieces um so something that i'm super passionate about and i'm so glad you're talking about this is really like unlearning narratives that you've learned in grad school or through clinical supervisors that maybe have passed down like really faulty beliefs or their own kind of <laughs> process that they haven't processed and so what would you say when we're talking about money being uncomfortable as a therapist? Like you're already kind of hinting at it, but like, can you give a couple examples or can you kind of deepen like what specifically, like if there's any action items that someone that's listening can take away, like what could they begin being curious about or kindly exploring a little bit further around, yeah. you know, what's uncomfortable?
1: Yeah. I, I love what you said, which is just to start curiously exploring whose narratives are in your mind and whether or not you believe them to be true. And so to give a couple of examples, when I was in grad school, I had a professor say, you know, social workers who go into private practice aren't real social workers. And the message there is that if you're going into private practice, you're somehow greedy. You're somehow not actually giving back. You're somehow not embodying the meaning of the field or the meaning of the work. Um, I then think to my first social work job when after a year of being there, I had you know, never shown up late. I never took a sick day. I was doing all the things I was supposed to do. My the, the numbers that we were tracking, like making sure you had enough clients and that people were meeting their goals and that your notes were in on time. All of those metrics were on point or above. And so at my annual review, I came in and I was like, Nervous, but also like okay, I'm I'm prepared to ask for this raise. And I asked for the raise and was told no. And also, you should be grateful you have a job in this economy. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so what is the message there? Whoa, well, it's pretty freaking clear. You're a therapist who has a job, or a social worker who has a job. That should be enough. In other words, doing the work that you do in the therapy room or in the community or however you're practicing therapy should be enough. You shouldn't want more financially. And so those are the messages that I got and I'm sure listeners have gotten versions of those. So it's worth just thinking like, is that your thought to bear? Like CBT 101, how true is this? And then also just exploring where did they get that message and how important is it for me to hold on to that message or to carry that message as truth? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's so good, Lindsay. That's so good. Yeah. What you said is so true about the, the asking for a raise. Cause I remember when I was doing my clinical hours, like I got a unpaid internship that I worked at yep. for about a year and a half, but they gave me a stipend every once in a while. as kind of like a, I don't know what you would call that. Like a bonus or whatnot. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so I remember even just whenever I would bring up the conversation of like, I would actually like, you know, a paid opportunity or, you know, that like, well, you know, how many other clinical sites give you stipends or, you know, those kind of things. And it's just such a disservice. It's so icky just it the is. way that, um, it, the way that our profession is kind of taken advantage of and, or like not really given, I would say even equal opportunity to other Um, professionals. Like when you look at like doctors or other, you know, graduate level training and things like that, there's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of things that need shifting.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, help me understand, um, because I know that you do a lot of different things. It sounds like with what you do, you do financial therapy with clients, but you also do that with therapists. Um, What would you say are like the, the biggest topics or like the mistakes that you see therapists making when they are, you know, approaching money or finances or their fees.
1: I, I think it's important to talk about the fee piece because that's one that I see so many therapists get caught up on. And specifically the mistakes that people make when they are setting their fee. And this is not a judgment, this is just a reflection of where I see therapists go awry when they're fee setting. Um, So there are kind of three common ones that I see again and again. The first one is kind of going by the market rate. And this is where you Google what other people are charging, you look at what people are charging on psychology today, and you kind of pick a number based on that. The second mistake is basing your fee on what insurance providers reimburse. And then the third one is setting your fee really low and then slowly raising it over time. And I can kind of break down the problems with each of those. So the first method of kind of doing this market rate is I'm raising my hand again. We're on a podcast. I can't see that, but that's what I did. And I think that's what a lot of people do is we don't know how to set our fees. So instead what we do is base it on what others are doing. And when I first set my fee, Claire, I can remember kind of like I'm a spreadsheet person. So I like made a spreadsheet of like what therapists were charging, what, how many years they'd been in practice, according to their website. I found an average And then I found that average and I set my rate $10 below the average. And the reason behind that was as a way for me to say, like, I'm more affordable than most people, but I'm not the cheapest. Like, that's, that's the way I set it in my head. Interesting. So many therapists do this. They like pick a number in the middle and they might slide it up a few bucks or slide it down a few bucks. But the problem with this is that we don't know why people came up with those rates and we don't know whether or not their practice is sustainable. We don't know what their financial needs are. We don't know how many clients they're seeing a week. We don't know anything about their personal relationship with money. And yet we are basing it on what other people are doing. And this is like the therapist version of keeping up with the Joneses, right? <laughs> of like, okay, I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing because I think that's what we're supposed to do. And it's not our fault. Like we're not taught about business in um counseling school or MFT school or MSW school, right? We're just that's not taught. So
0: would you say with the first piece, um, would you say that a lot of that is comparison oriented in terms of not wanting other therapists to see you and compare like if you had set a higher price than them they might be like well you haven't been licensed long enough or you're greedy or whatever you know concept is do you think part of it is just like not just you trying to see what their number is so that way you can kind of keep up with them but also so you don't get judged for doing the opposite of them like if you did your own calculation based off of your financial goals for the year your you know overhead like all the different things maybe your number would be like significantly higher maybe even double that but the piece of being like i don't want to appear to be like rocking the boat or um yeah greedy or the opposite you know
1: yeah i think yes to comparing yes to not wanting to appear greedy and also just a basic lack of personal finances in general therapists are not immune from not having access to financial literacy and education. I think it's something like 12 or 15 states in the U S mandate any type of financial literacy education. And even then we know our education system isn't the greatest. Like I remember taking like a a some sort of like home economics class in high school. And we were learning how to like balance a checkbook, right? Like we don't even have (laughs) checkbooks to balance anymore. Like it's so outdated. Um, and I also think it's, it's a little bit of therapists are really trained to do what other people are doing. Mm
0: -hmm. Meaning
1: we are trained in grad school that if you want to help somebody with anxiety, you must learn CBT. If you want to help somebody with substance abuse, you must learn motivational interviewing. And so we are so trained to go against our own intuition. And we're so trained that to be a good therapist is to have these specific letters behind your name or this specific training or this specific intervention available to you that I think we're so used to just doing. That's what so-and-so did. That's what it means to be a good therapist. So that's what I'll do.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And would you kind of also say maybe that has to do with like some of the measurable outcomes that we're kind of required to do for progress notes for, you know, healing and growth mm-hmm. and like to prove that we're actually making progress with clients and or in compliance with the treatment model.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's all tied up in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, I'm let you get back to that. You had two and three that you were going to deep into. I, I love this stuff. Obviously, um, the second mistake is basing your fee based on what insurance providers reimburse. So you'll go, oh, Blue Cross Blue Shield reimburses $140. That's what I'll charge for a 90837 or whatever the the code is for you know a 53 minute session. And the problem with this is that not to get political, but therapy is political. Our healthcare system is broken and trying to base your fee based off a system that doesn't work sets you up to be behind. Um, and so instead of going, okay, what does Anthem pay? What does Hat pay? What does whoever pay? Again, coming back to, to your own stuff, which is what you were hinting at earlier, which we can get into. And then the last mistake is like, setting your fee super low. And then when you fill, then raising your rates. And this method is taught everywhere. And I don't know who started it or why, but I hear it all the time of like, set your fee low. And then once your practice is full, then you can raise your rates. And again, it's it's like based on, I don't know, somebody said it once and therapists are like lemurs and we follow the rules and we just get in line and do what we're, we're supposed to do. Well,
0: what's funny about that though is like, Maybe this is a mean thing to say, but I feel like if you set your fee low, that makes me feel like you're insecure or maybe you're not a good therapist. Like if I was a consumer and I like look on psychology today and there are like different rates, I'm like, why are they so cheap? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it kind of, I feel like to me, it's a little bit of a red flag.
1: Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying this because I think therapists get weirded out by that, but you're so right. If I'm a consumer and I'm in a lobby and there's dentist A and dentist B, yeah. and dentist a costs a hundred dollars to pull my tooth and dentist B costs $5 to pull a tooth. I'm going to be like,
0: mm, is the quality of care the same?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you using rusty tools? Am I not going to get anesthesia? Like what's yeah. going on that makes it so cheap for you to do that. And so when we, when I give an example like that, people are like, oh yeah, duh. But when we talk about therapy, people are like, no, being a good therapist means charging as little
0: as possible. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. Um, so I'm wondering, um, as we kind of continue this conversation, what would you say, like, why is it so hard for therapists to practice like the self-trust piece of trusting, um, that when they are building their practice, that it will succeed and that, you know, that they are worthy of a a higher fee or that they can trust what they choose in that process.
1: I think I hinted at it earlier, but it's worth really being clear about it is that in our fields, we are taught to follow the rules as a measure of being a good therapist. And this goes back to, you need to have a Gottman certification or MI certification or trauma-focused CBT or EMDR, whatever it is in order to be good. And when it comes to being a good therapist and setting up a practice that works, we are supposed to do whatever the people ahead of us did. And the problem with that is that so many therapists don't have a a business background, no shade, but we're following other people who didn't know what they were doing. The problem is then you're creating a foundation you're you're creating a foundation that is not built solidly. And what that means is if you're sliding your scale, if you're undercharging, if you're seeing any and everyone, because right to be good therapists, we have to be inclusive of all. Yeah. And so then that means you're working a lot. You're probably working weird hours. You're probably saying yes to working with clients who you're actually not the best clinical fit for. Yeah. And you're burning out, you're behind, you're exhausted. We're also terrible at upholding our own boundaries. Like Uh, You want to really get a Facebook post going, say, Do you guys charge late cancel fees? There's another like wave of (laughs) of, you're bad. So, all of that to say, we have been conditioned to ignore our inner wisdom and even just intellect. We have been conditioned to not listen to ourselves. Some of the first things we learn as clinicians is to learn how to make our faces neutral and our voices not you know, impactful or reactive. And that's such BS. Yeah. This idea of a blank slate therapist comes from therapy in the fifties and sixties, where it was mostly like psychoanalytic reflection, which is fine if that's what you want to do, but we aren't blank slate therapists. We know research has shown time and time again, you can have the best training in the best evidence-based practices, but Mm -hmm. the biggest measure of therapeutic success, when we're talking about whether a client is getting better as defined by symptom reduction Mm -hmm. and improvement towards their goals is whether or not you click with your therapist, right? It's client, client therapist fit. Mm -hmm. So we have to tap into that. Into that inner wisdom that, yeah, we can use CBT and DBT interventions all day, every day, but being a human and being empathic and being compassionate and being curious and doing it in a way where we actually connect with our clients, that moves the needle much further than anything else. And what that requires is tapping into our inner wisdom. So I know therapists are capable of doing it. But we have been so brainwashed to believe that to be a good therapist is to follow the rules Hmm. that that actually harms our business savviness. As we feel like we have to slide our scale to nothing, say yes to seeing everybody, work nights and weekends, and we
0: become martyrs in the process. Yeah, no, I hear that. Well, and I've said this a lot to different friends and colleagues, but I often reflect on how being a therapist and the model of like just like what you described, blank slate theory, some of these historical rooted concepts, they actually really conflict with being a business owner Mm. and the, the model of, you know, growing a a business or, you know, expanding your reach and like all those different things, they almost have like this like friction that Mm. happens where i I find myself when I'm being kind and curious and leaning in, it's usually in those moments of when they kind of rub against each other, the business side of me and the therapist side of me that, um, they're like in like, almost like a conflict of like, but I want to be a a great therapist, but I also want to be a great business owner, but can I be both? Um, and I don't know if you, if you feel that as well, or you see that with some of the clients you work with of kind of like what you're saying as we're unlearning narratives, as we, um, kind of reflect on what we've been taught. Mm. And then when we look at, the business structure of private practice, or you look at pursuing other entrepreneurial endeavors, is it selfish to make good money? Is it selfish to pursue other opportunities? Um, So I'm just curious if you kind of have seen that with some of your clients as well.
1: It's really interesting hearing you say that. Um, And I'm reflecting on my own journey because when I started, for sure, that's how I felt. In that, being a therapist and being in business were in conflict. But I really don't feel that anymore. Um, and it is there is a, a model that is eluding me, but I will paint the picture for you that has helped make the shift for me. And it is essentially um, ethical capitalism, which I know is an oxymoron. But but stick with me, and I'll, I'll find the model name and send it to you afterwards. But it's this idea, if you have a Venn diagram and you have these three circles, you have doing good work, mm. helping people, or I'm sorry, doing work you're good at doing, helping people and making a living. And those three circles intersect. And at that Venn diagram, in my opinion of doing ethical business is therapists in private practice because we're helping people we're doing what we're called to serve, and we're making a living for it. And when we think about the painful part of business or the painful part of exploitative capitalism, it's about extracting as much as possible to get the most that you can. And I don't think we're doing that with our clients if we are doing good work. We're not taking from them We're actually holding space for them and giving them the tools that they need and or sharing with them the tools they have within themselves so they can be healthier, whatever that means for them. And that then causes a positive ripple effect on the people in their lives and hopefully within their community. And the financial exchange is less extractive and much more reciprocal and and energetic in a positive way. So I used to see it as friction, but now I see it much more as flow and sustainability.
0: Wow. Oh, I love that. And I, I wish that people could see how you were even just doing the, the circles. Cause I feel like that makes so much sense. It does. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I really love that. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, I'm wondering, I know our time is wrapping up soon but I'm wondering like, what can people do now? Like they've been invigorated by this conversation. They are cultivating curiosity and self-reflection and breaking cycles of blank slate theory and all the different pieces. Um, What, what kind of action items, or maybe how can they learn more from you? Like just what, what things have helped you grow and, or what, of encouragement would you give to them in terms of continuing to deepen this process?
1: Mm, I love this question. And as a therapist, I'll offer some potential reflection questions since we have been sitting with a lot of curiosity and it would be this, who are you helping or who are you serving when you continue operating your practice the way you're currently operating it? And getting really curious with as much compassion and self-empathy as you can muster about what happens if you don't change things and getting really comfortable holding space for that both and you can mm-hmm. charge a sustainable fee and give back to your community, right? You It doesn't have to be either or. You can stay on a insurance panel that works really well for you. You can offer two to four sliding scale spaces. You can volunteer in your community. You can give presentations at a local library on mental health, whatever your area of expertise is. How can you give back in a way that doesn't extract from you? And that might be a good way to think about how can you operate your business in a way that is sustainable and you are still planting seeds within the community in the areas
0: that matter most to you? I love that. I love the reflection questions in that too, because I feel like there's so much deepening of all of those questions in terms of self-reflection. And I imagine those questions being ones that if listeners are listening right now, like, to almost put in your phone and like maybe ask yourself that quarterly yearly like maybe those things might change too as your business evolves as you you know grow your skill set as a clinician as your goals might shift um that those seem like really kind questions to reflect on not just now but in the future too
1: um i'm so obsessed with what you just said <laughs> because there's a nugget in there that i think therapists don't give themselves enough permission of and it is Permission to let your business change, Mm. right? You can always go back to a sliding scale that feels, you know, different than the way that you're doing it now. You can always move into a new niche. You can, like, I think we get really stuck on if I change my fees, I will forever be beholden to this model. Or if I move into this niche, I will be forever known as that person. And we have to also engage in and with our businesses with like that curiosity and playfulness. And I love that you said that, like reflect on these questions quarterly or a couple times a year and then change your business
0: accordingly. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking the questions. I'm definitely going to start applying them. Well, how can the audience continue to learn from you? How can they connect with you? What can they expect from you if they go to your website or if they learn about your offerings?
1: Yeah, so my business is called Mind Money Balance and you can find me on all the places. Um, My podcast is of the same name and depending on when this episode comes out, I may or may not be on a social media hiatus So a fun thing specifically for therapists to do is I've created a free guide that rounds up my top five resources to fill your practice. And the first thing on that list is cultivating self-trust. So you can go to my website, mindmoneybalance.com slash free guide and it will, you know, give you what you need. Um, and when you add your name to get that free guide, you can opt into to my email list. That is where I actually prefer to communicate with folks. Um, so that's a, I'm, it's a fun, in my opinion, place to be. I'm the only person who's writing that stuff. So yeah, come, come check me out on my website, on my podcast. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I may or may not be
0: there. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you for providing such great ways for people just to, whether it's the free offerings, whether it's the podcast or even just you saying out loud that you're taking a social media hiatus. I feel like that in itself gives other clinicians permission and just the thought of like, yes, you do not have to be on social media 24 seven and you can take breaks and pause and recalibrate and I would love to just, I know we're about to wrap up, but I would just love to hear a tiny bit about that because I feel of like you
1: course, course. could even do a
0: podcast episode about that. Cause I think that is so valuable.
1: So to kind of share with your listeners where that came from last year, like many of us, I was just experiencing a ton of kind of i would call it almost like activism fatigue and in, in a way mm-hmm. in that um i'm i'm biracial i'm filipina and white and last year there was a ton of sharing and resharing about stop asian hate and while i appreciated the sharing and resharing it was like triggering and draining to me all at once and also i felt like i had to be constantly on and and being a good activist as a person who's white passing and really being an advocate mm-hmm. And it was, you know, no surprise, all your audiences were like, yeah, been there, like just burnt out. Um, And so I deleted the app just because I needed a break. Mm-hmm. I took a, maybe a little over a month off. It was like, wow, my business didn't suffer. My email list grew. My waitlist for therapy continues to grow. Hmm. Turns out social media isn't quite as important to my business as I thought. And a few months later, I did another month off of social media. So I took about two months, give or take off in 2021. Um, And I plan to do the same this year. So I'll take, I don't know how long I'll take off. It's really, I kind of feel into my body about when it makes sense to come back because I don't have a love hate with Instagram Um, and Instagram. I should be clear is the social media platform of choice for me. But I have to check in and say, is this energizing me or is this draining me? And in the times where it's draining me more than it's energizing me, it's usually a cue that I need to hit pause. So I just like literally I'll delete the app. I'll put up a post that says, Hey, this is how you can reach me. Yeah. See you on the flip side. And then I delete the app and it feels so good. There's always like the three days where your thumb is trained to go to Instagram, right? Right. And then you, you like retrain your, your digits to move in a different way. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, my brain is like wide open. And then I also find that's like when my creativity really flows and then I can get ideas for podcast episodes and blog posts. And it's, it's you know, not intentionally, oh, I have to be creative, but it just tends to happen. So that's where it came from. And it was so helpful for me last year that I'm I'm doing it
0: again. Yeah. I love that. I've taken a few social media breaks before. And I remember there was this like awkward moment where you like get in the car and you realize, oh, I always check my phone before I start driving. Or when you're done driving, you always go back to the app and you're like, wow, like it's amazing. Like what you said about the thumb memory, but like just the spaciousness that you notice in your, Day and your schedule and the transition times between clients, like all the things you're like, oh my goodness. Like they're so ingrained in social media.
1: Oh, and you're just reminding me, after my first social media break, I then set an app timer where it kicks me off after a certain amount of time. Um, so that helps me from the the like in-the-car checking because I have to be like, do I really want to waste two of my, you know, 30 minutes today on this. And the answer is either yes or no, but it helps to kind of create that external structure. So I added that on as an additional way to be more intentional.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like, and I know our time's wrapping up, but I feel like some of the concepts that you shared today about finances, I feel like if you repurpose them into social media or consumption or all that, I feel like they're really similar.
1: Totally, totally. I, yeah, there's so much here,
0: right? (laughs) I think the answer is you're coming back. You're going to share more. We're going to keep learning from you, but regardless, they should check out your podcast because I imagine you deepen a lot of these concepts there too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you
1: so much for having me. Thank
0: you so much for being here, Lindsay. It was such a pleasure getting to finally meet you and just to learn from your heartbeat and your passion and just your professionalism as you really forge a path for therapists. That's so vital so necessary and so impactful. So thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you want to launch a private practice, but you don't know where to begin. Well, you are in luck. Our signature course, Flourishing in Private Practice, is coming October 2022. This 12-hour self-paced course is perfect if you are a pre-licensed student training associate, or even a licensed therapist that is wanting to learn more about strengthening your private practice or curious to take the leap from agency to being your own boss. This course will walk you through all the steps from the basics of setting up your business structure, creating your brand, building your reputation in the field and strengthening your systems to help your business flourish. This course is filled to the brim with tangible examples templates, and structure to help your business thrive and for you to grow and flourish personally and professionally. If this is you and you are wanting in go to our website at the to join our waitlist to be the first to know when the doors open. We also have a free download on our website called 10 steps to starting a private practice and it's available for you today. So if you're wanting to get started sooner or dip your feet into the idea, don't wait another moment. Thank you for tuning in to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as that helps other clinicians and therapists find our community and thrive through our offerings. Want to take your business a step further? Visit the theflourishingtherapreneur.com or our Instagram with the same handle. Connect with our free community or sign up for an upcoming course to help cultivate your thriving business and endeavors so you can flourish personally and professionally. Until next time, I'm your host, Claire Blakey, and I believe you deserve to flourish as a Therapreneur.